0: Good morning, and welcome to the Monday Call. I'm Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer at NZ Funds. There are times when markets move so fast that you can miss it if you briefly look away. Since its low on 27 October, the S&P 500 has risen more than 6%, regaining over half its recent losses. Investors looking to understand the direction from here face significant challenges. The media is replete with negative or even doomsday views from pundits and commentators, and the data is noisy. Yet it's clear the global economy is outperforming even the most optimistic expectations of many. 85% of companies on the S&P 500 have now reported their Q3 results, and blended earnings are up around 4% year-on-year, revealing surprising strength. At the same time, Inflation is declining and central banks and developed economies seem to have finished hiking interest rates as they see light at the end of the tunnel. Why is the optimism missing? We ask. This week, Mark Brooks, Portfolio Manager at NZ Funds, and I will discuss five key reasons giving confidence that financial markets are set to resume their upward march at some stage sooner rather than later. Mark, welcome. Morning. It's great to have you here again. Morning, Look, everyone. Uh, when we wrote this on um, on uh, uh, Friday morning, yep. uh, Friday hadn't closed in uh, the states, so that six percent I mentioned earlier is more it's now like sort of 75 seven yeah. percent. And so we are we are hitting back up. And last week, not that we you know invest for the short term, but it is very clear that um, markets can move very quickly. Take us through um i guess the last wee while and um the broader picture and then we'll launch into the five key reasons and uh, unpack them cool cool
1: thanks stefan yeah i think it's it's always even for the for those of us who are sort of active in markets it's always a reminder of how quick uh markets can change and it really is that um <clears throat> a lot of return both positive and negative with while well saying can happen in a very short space of time so, you know, over the last basically 15 days, we saw you know, September and October and markets were challenging. Markets moved lower by about sort of 5% over that period. Uh that has all been reversed and more more as an up. Um in 15 days, you basically had almost a year's return, sort of 7 to 8 almost 8% in US shares in that time frame. So, uh just a reminder, you need to be invested uh, to, to enjoy that. Um, I thought rather than <clears throat> before we sort of talk about what has happened and what has, how we sort of see the world through those five points, I thought it would be worth doing, well, actually, sort of a, a little bit of history is, is kind of useful. Because I think if we think about, as, as per your intro, if we think about sort of this year, most people were expecting uh, recession. Uh, Certainly in New Zealand and uh, globally, that was sort of the consensus and and a pretty challenging outlook. And in many respects, with interest rates high, with central banks still looking to slow economies, uh, growth being muted, better but muted, and uh, uh, a war out there. There's sort of a lot of noise on the horizon and we're getting asked questions from clients. Wouldn't it, given all the uncertainty, wouldn't it be better to be in cash? And the, the yeah, the short answer is probably over the last year, <clears throat> with the joys of hindsight, probably would have been. And I'll go into some of the <coughs> uh, share market, broader share market returns later. But I think that sort of just looking back through history is quite instructive at times. And if we go back to New Zealand all the way back in 1991, which uh, was a while ago, but uh, probably still fresh in the mind of some of us, if you think about 1991 at the start of the year or we're in the sort of first half of the year what was happening uh, you had a gulf war so the first gulf war in iraq was uh, sort of happened in the late 1990s and so 91 you had a war going on it had a really ugly period in terms of new zealand shares where in 1990 the new zealand share market down was close was down close to 40 percent uh, you had inflation in 1990, it peaked at 7.6%. It was coming down, but in early 91, it was still four and a half percent. GDP growth negative, deeply negative. <clears throat> Q1 in uh, 1991 was uh, minus 2.4%. So, you had an economy that was going backwards at a fairly decent rate of knots. And you know, the flip side of that is uh, life was pretty challenging in terms of yeah, unemployment almost double digits. It did get to double digits during 91, but it's Q1, it started the year at 9.8% and, and finished over 11, I think. Uh, as an interesting aside, that's one reason why I personally ended up doing a, uh, a master's degree after my b- bachelor's is that jobs were hard to find and uh, it was kind of easy to stay at a state university. Uh, shows my age, possibly. Um,
0: you just studied really early.
1: Yeah. And against that, Cash turn deposits were 9 to 10%. So, you yeah, know, you had a lot of negatives on the horizon. You had uh, uh, cash looking pretty attractive. And then, you know, again, for those who are around, yeah, 1991 was Ruth Richardson, uh, finance minister, and what was sort of deemed the mother of all budgets. So she massively cut government spending uh, and, you know, cut spending on, introduced to user pays and healthcare and all of those sorts of things. So, really, sort of another strong contractionary force on the economy sort of coming in uh, to what was already a really weak situation. So if, if there was ever a time probably in New Zealand to sort of run for cash, that might have been it. Uh, what was interesting, though, is what happened to the share market over that period. It had been down hard in 1990, as I said. 1991, it was up 25%. 1992, a more muted plus 4%. Uh, but then 1993, up 40%. So, it, you know, whilst cash <coughs> was attractive, still didn't outweigh being invested in, in assets over that period of time. And yeah, again, a little bit of a broken record, and yeah, um, people would have heard me say this before, but really our role as investment managers and the role of our industry is really to work with people to move them out of that default position, which is cash, uh, and really into assets that have an ability over time, and it is that time issue that's the important one, over time generate returns that are better than cash, and they'll better compound that. uh, And that's how you grow wealth.
0: The other thing, of course, is if you move into cash, so you you mentioned earlier that it would have been better, perhaps, to be in cash, you have to have the foresight um, and the ability uh, And um, uh, I guess uh, the moral fortitude, if you're you're nervous in that way, to reinvest in order to to get the benefits down the line. And, and of course, markets move extremely quickly. Well, we'll, we'll, one, markets move
1: quickly, and two, ultimately, markets are forward-looking and people look to uh, position for what is happening. So often in the case, and I think 1991 was a good example, it was a really ugly outlook in 1991, but why was the share market up? Ultimately, the share market was positioning for what was a better economic scenario in 1992 and 1993. That obviously
0: continued to come through. After all the hard work was done. Correct. Which is something we'll be touching upon shortly. Um, Okay, so we've got our five uh, reasons for um, uh, optimism in the current environment. The first one is earnings and valuations. Take us through why you believe that this is such a major contributor and the market, um, uh, or I guess the, the the less positive pundits and commentators aren't focusing on this.
1: I'm going to attack this from a, a couple of different ways if I can. Um, I think one of the, if we look back at the start of the year, is one of the things that be honest even you know we missed as well is that last year with interest rates rising uh, people very much viewed the mega cap uh, stocks you know the the Microsofts the Amazons uh, etc as what you call long duration assets maybe not and maybe Microsoft and uh, Amazon etc are a bad example but other tech companies where earnings were more likely to be large in the future than they are now so with interest rates being super low previously, uh, your need to discount uh, those future earnings was much lower. So essentially $100 10 years time was basically worth the same as it is today. Now with interest rates being much higher, $100 in 10 years time is worth less because you get a discounted at you know basically uh, cash rates are you know, 5 or 6%. So you need to you can give less weight to money in the future. So that's sort of a long intro to say that people were very focused that technology companies were going to be very impacted by um, interest rates. And certainly last year they were. But in in retrospect, what was missed is really, you know, why have those companies done well over the last, um, really probably last decade? It's because they have remarkable earnings power. And in that respect, a lot of, you know, what has happened this year and you've seen really quite stellar performance, what they call the sort of magnificent seven, those big mega cap um, stocks in the US, and it's really driven the the market, is that the earnings power of those businesses has come through, even though growth has been better, but it's still been quite muted. And uh, it was certainly a point one of our external managers has been making, Fisher Investments out of California, caught up with them recently, and they made the point that Uh, from their point of view, the way they're very much what we'd call a top-down investor, a a share market investor, so they look at the economic environment and the positioning uh, of the market. And they're really saying that if you have a period where growth is muted, and their view is that, you know, one, we've been in that for some time and still likely to be in that going forward, that you don't really want businesses that are dependent on economic growth because their earnings will be muted but uh, you want businesses on the flip side that have an ability to drive their own growth, and that's very much that tech space. So those earnings have been there, and that's really definitely kept up the market. Uh, at a wider level, though, uh, again, I, I suppose if we think about where we were coming into this year, really the consensus was uniformly that you know, it was going to be a tough year in terms of um economic growth and that earnings would be would be tough um, and you know for the first <clears throat> basically for the first half of the year that was probably true you know we've seen sort of. Uh, US quarterly earnings uh, have really sort of dropped for three quarters in a row sort of end of 2022 and the first two quarters of 2023 the most recent earnings uh, update is actually, on average, companies did pretty well. They're up about, earnings are now up about 4%, 4.5% year to date. Uh, so that's, you know, that's not particularly, that's that, that's it's a relatively positive outcome, especially in the in the situation where, you know, beneath the hood, you've had a couple of sectors, things like energy, so obviously oil. You know, they had massive earnings uh, uh, uplift in 2022. So they're coming off those very high numbers, so they've actually had some quite, steep negative numbers and equally some of the materials companies so steel and things like that which uh, again because they're coming off the back of that COVID uh, um, supply side squeezes are actually seeing some negative numbers so actually in many respects earnings uh, are good and if we look forward Probably these numbers are, will come down. But at the moment, expectations for next year are for US earnings to be up about 10% in 2024. So that's a pretty rosy number. Um, I'm, I'm probably a little sceptical it's going to be that good, but um, that's not bad. So from an earnings standpoint, uh, things are – a lot priced. I think people are priced in the negative news and they're now being a little surprised by how good some of the earnings are coming through.
0: Okay. And so that's very, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, US market centric, and that's obviously a major driver of global expansion and the, the economy worldwide. How does it translate to New Zealand, particularly? Are you expecting similar uh, earnings growth, or do you, you, do you is it is it likely to be a bit more muted?
1: Look, I think again, coming back to that point the Fisher made between sort of earnings depend. Uh, GDP-dependent, economically-dependent businesses and uh, things like the tech companies, New Zealand is more of a GDP-dependent uh, share market. If you think about you know the names like your Meridians, even your Sparks and your Choruses, those sort of large-cap names in New Zealand, uh, a lot of the property companies, you know, there, there is benefit if interest rates come down for some of those, but generally it is quite tied to how activity uh, the wider economic activity. So, you know, we think uh, generally a lot is priced in. The New Zealand share market has gone broadly nowhere for four years. So that is a reflection of the economy that's sort of, you know, <clears throat> been working through a reset in interest rates and, and those sorts of aspects. But, you know, because of that, we think there are um, there are pockets of opportunity. And, you know, very much our mantra this year has been to to be invested and to remain fully invested, so not to change our asset allocation much. It's been quite, um, <clears throat> yeah, quite fixed of being fully invested, but we still are quite active in our stock selection in terms of, yeah, you know, both the work that Fisher and and International are doing in California and MFS in uh, in Boston as our ex primary external managers, but also in terms of our New Zealand and Australian share portfolio, we are. Finding names, and we've talked before about sort of names like Ryman, particularly, and, and other ones like Fletcher Building, or in Australia, things like sort of Resmed and uh, other businesses like that, which we think really have some some really strong opportunities.
0: Yeah, and the um, I guess the, the the nature of the cash flow generating um, elements of the New Zealand share market is different from the US, and that we've got you know it's more a New Zealand Inc story. And exactly. Yep. Currently we have incredible immigration numbers coming through, um, supporting obviously the ability for many companies to be able to sustain strong earnings. Okay, um, how does this all translate to valuations? Where are they at in the US and, and New Zealand? And what does that mean then for investors um, who are continuing to contribute and um, investing today, or currently obviously have portfolios and are thinking about well, what's the direction of my portfolio from here?
1: Yeah. Um... I might take this in a slightly wider context rather than move away from shares for a little bit, but we'll come back to that is if we look at valuations generally, we would argue that you know they're they're at, at least normal, if not uh, quite you know even in some cases very cheap. and if we look at you know clearly you're getting paid a lot more for cash, so that's a good starting point uh, in terms of once you move out the <coughs> the risk spectrum and the the maturity spectrum there if you move into bonds really you're getting paid the highest amount for bonds that we have basically in 20 years which is excluding the GFC which was a period of sort of yeah massive stress but uh, we haven't been paid sort of you know 6 7% for bonds for you know really since the late 1990s so that's massively attractive from a valuation standpoint and it and really means that that more conservative part of the portfolio which has been a drag over the last couple of years um, a, because either it wasn't earning much back in yeah 1920 et cetera, or because interest rates have been moving up rapidly and it's really sort of you've had a capital loss on those assets. That flips around and they become you know, really attractive assets to own and actually brings back that stability aspect and that if uh, the world does end up being a, a more challenging place, those assets have a lot of ability to outperform as interest rates move lower. Um, if I look at... Shares, you know, generally the, or at its um, widest sense, have tended to view that a bit like property here in New Zealand, <coughs> because interest rates were super low in the wake of COVID, and because there was a lot of government spending, we definitely saw prices driven up a lot. Yeah, you know, two thousand and twenty was a very strong market for the shares globally. Uh, much, really a bit like the the moves in the housing market. Big move up, you've had a period of, of quite painful adjustment. Um, you know, clearly housing in different areas is down somewhere between, I suppose, sort of 5 and 20%, depending on which region. And you've seen that in, in share markets. And from that point of view, it definitely says that valuations generically are back close to sort of long-time norms. Uh, and I, I, I will have spoken about it before, but, you know, very much our our mindset is we use uh, multiple concepts. So how many times earnings are we paying? Um, if, you know, if a company's earning $100 a year and you're paying $1,000 for it, that means you're paying 10 times earnings. Now, generally, yeah, share markets trade on somewhere, depending on which market, somewhere around about sort of 20 times earnings. And yeah, after being... <coughs> Much in the U.S. case, much closer to a 30 times or 30 plus times earnings. They're now back at sort of plus or minus 20 times. So we'd see that valuation uh, being more normal. I think the 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 challenge to be to be frank is looking at um, the types of valuations because you really have a little bit of a we well, actually have quite a large dichotomy in the U.S. especially. You know, if I'd sort of touched the at the beginning is that uh, if we think about returns this year, that generally actually cash has done pretty well. And in hindsight, you know, if you were all in cash, that's probably been a good place to be. That's, yeah, but people will say, well, US share market is is up sort of, you know, what was it, up sort of 14% as at sort of uh, close on Friday for the year. That looks like a really good number, and it is a great number. But again, as I said, if we sort of look through mm-hmm. uh, some of the, um, the detail there, a lot of that has been very focused in those tech businesses. If we go to sort of a wider group of names, and, and we've talked probably before about the equally weighted S and P. So, the normal S and P index is cap weighted, so basically it puts the weight relative to the size of the business. So, uh, you know, Microsoft, I don't know the number it's off the top of my head, but it's around about sort of a five and a half, six percent. Apple, much the same. Yeah, likes them in NVIDIA and Amazon, Yeah, threes to fours. So they really do dominate where that market goes. If we look at it broadly and say, well, we'll take all 500 names and just take 20 basis point weight, so they're all equal, uh, that, you know, <clears throat> that index is actually down this year. Uh, so the broad, again, that idea that the broader economy has been more muted. And you sort of see that with the likes of the the Dow Jones index, the older sort of more, Uh, Industrially focused index that's up sort of around about 2%. The New Zealand index is down about two this year, Australia's up just under three. So, from that point of view, you know, potentially parts of the tech space valuations are high, um, but they're growing. The other side, you know, valuations actually are pretty low in many cases. So that was probably a, a longer answer than you were. <laughs> well, it's you just, were uh, thinking it is about. really interesting
0: because you, the, um, it, uh, so much of it turns on how the index is put together. Correct. And if yeah. you're talking about whether well, the U.S. economy has done, uh, you know, based on stock exchange prices, um, has done really well. Uh, one... one, one Um, perspective of it is, you know, the S&P 500 has done really well because, but um, as you say, the seven companies are really driving that. And then the equal weighted, which is a fairer reflection arguably of, um, as an indicator of uh, the broader economy, um, you know, doesn't look so good. So as a portfolio manager, you need to, you know, you want to be part of the growth, but you also need to be really balanced in how you invest your capital.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that can be a Uh, A discussion point with clients is, you know, we hold a balanced portfolio, even in the growth space. There are, you know, significant allocations to New Zealand and Australia, which, you know, broadly that's a market that's gone sideways for four years. We have allocations to to global shares. US parts of the US share market have done very well. Other parts of, you know, global shares have been more more muted.
0: Okay, so our second uh, reason for optimism is declining inflation. And Goldman's came out on Friday, I think it was, with um, a phrase, the hard part is over. Uh, inflation is now running at about um, core inflation, which strips out oil and a, um, a bunch of other more cyclical um, components. has moved from 6 to 3% in the US. And um, their view is that it's going to stay a little bit elevated, yep. but it's heading in the right direction. And um, it's setting the stage for, uh, ultimately, rates to start coming down again. Take us through your perspective on this and what that means for us as investors in New Zealand and other economies outside of the US.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, broadly our view is, is not wildly different from that one that Goldman's um, talking about, is that, you know, what has been, um, I, I suppose, actually quite remarkable, or well not remarkable, but, you know, really interesting this year is that actually you have seen that fairly consistent moved down in inflation off the peaks across the sort of Western global economies that saw that inflation impulse. Um, and Goldman's made the point. If you look at those economies that experienced a high inflation impulse, basically the in September, the three month rolling inflation, so sort of you know where we are in a much shorter space of time, was had a th- sort of a 3% number on it. So you know very much that's back. Close to or broadly near the bands that central banks are looking for, so that's why they're sort of saying, Yeah, <clears throat> a lot of the hard work's been done. Um, we've they've definitely got on top of it, and I think the positive, as we've sort of touched on before, that I'm talking with and we spoke with was it Jared from City uh, from Kiwi Bank uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, yeah, the fact that. Those headline numbers are coming down. In New Zealand, we're probably likely to see a headline CPI with a four on the front by the end of the year. Might be high fours, but it'll still have a four on the front. Definitely means that, uh, yeah, I I think the chance of uh, that inflation becoming embedded has definitely diminished. And I think central banks globally will be really comfortable and happy about that. Because, yeah, again, and, and sort of you know paraphrase Goldman's for this, they sort of ask the question, well, why why has this inflation come down relatively quickly um and yet, but at the same time we've actually still had growth that's been better than expected and the point they make is that yeah you know, typically inflation actually comes out of over truly overheated economies just too much demand happening across a wide range of of parts of the economy yeah Definitely, we had too much demand, but it was maybe not overheated. It was more really that supply um <clears throat> it was sort of the trying to get through the the squeeze point uh and you know the flip side is you know as supplies sort of opened up, we've definitely had that relief, and you have know, had that sort of valve, I suppose. You know the years moved out of it more quickly than people have expected at the same time you've had things like the service economy coming back and other aspects actually sort of helping growth along so so you haven't had sort of the probably the same degree of uh, um broad based even though even though inflation seemed quite broad based it it wasn't embedded to the same degree so um that does make us pretty optimistic. I think again, you know we've spoken a number of times that. We think there are reasons for inflation to remain uh, more elevated. We're not likely to see the sort of zero to one percent number that we did sort of during the early two thousands, and really that comes back to the, you know, I, I suppose, ultimately the spending that's going on globally, either either through the sort of yeah you know, globalization process, people bringing activity closer to home, uh, in a similar way, you know the The climate change uh, initiatives, people spending money to bolster the electricity system and find new ways of generating electricity. And the last one is really that government expenditure. There is, across Western nations, there is still decent amounts of government expenditure. It's not like sort of 91 and Ruth Richardson. We're not seeing a contracting government. Basically, governments typically are expanding still. And especially in the case of the US, you know, they're running a 6 to even 7% budget deficit. So that's a lot of money coming in, which uh, ultimately will be, you know, I think a lot of that's getting invested for things like that sort of climate change, et cetera. So that creates uh, just a degree of activity, which I think will keep inflation uh, more elevated, not high, but more elevated. And that's not such a bad thing necessarily.
0: There's always talk of... Um significant underinvestment in infrastructure across Western economies. Uh, so, and I mean, New Zealand government's no different from the others, the, the continuous um, promises to solve for that, which um, will bring with it significant continued spending. Um, uh, the other thing is, is a just interesting point you raise about um, uh, it being, continuing to be somewhat embedded, but not to the extent perhaps some Um, originally we're thinking, uh, employment numbers are still really strong, aren't they? And so suggesting that um, that kind of wage growth uh, still has a bit to play out.
1: Yes, um, I think probably the biggest challenge, certainly for markets going forward, is what happens to employment growth. Typically, and again, this is a very US-centric comment, but yeah, you know, the U.S. economy, by the nature of the way it's set up, is yeah, you know, it is easier to hire and fire people in the U.S. So they tend to yeah, you know, that unemployment number tends to be more elastic than what we see here. Uh, and in that sense, yeah, you know, one of the typical challenges is once unemployment starts to um, rise in the U.S., often it can see quite a big jump at different points. And I think if yeah. You know, <clears throat> If you, if we do see that going forward, um, actually in the short term, employment numbers have been remarkably strong in the US, but if we did see that going forward and unemployment started moving up quite rapidly, that is something I think that would weigh on the market in the short term. Um, but coming back to the wage aspect, I think both that factor and here in New Zealand, really the um, the immigration which you touched on, have definitely put... A bit of a lid on that sort of wage inflation that was starting, ultimately starting to pick up at a bit of steam. You've generally seen across different areas, you know, the the switch rate, people switching jobs, has fallen quite a lot. And in New Zealand, because of the population growth that we've seen from immigration, it's definitely meant that employers have been able to fill job vacancies they've had. So, yeah, definitely going back through the the surveys out there. Uh, really the number one issue facing businesses this time last year and had been for a long period of time was difficulty of finding staff. Now it's more about demand and saying, well, actually, where's my next dollar coming from in terms of things I'm selling, but I've actually got enough employees on board and I'm happy with that. So um, that's sort of the unknown and something we're watching pretty closely going forward.
0: Brilliant. The third the third of our um, reasons to be optimistic is accelerating technological advancement and what that means for productivity. A couple of elements to this. Um, tell me what, you, when you think about that, what does it mean for you? And uh, you've touched on, obviously, the, uh, the big seven in the US. That's um, part of that. Where is it coming from?
1: I, m- I might take it a little bit of a tangent back to your point about investment and, you know, one of the, one of the challenges I think, probably, and one of the hopefully one of the positives that comes out of this general sort of government spending is that we will see more investment in you know, in New Zealand's case in actually just moving things around and be able to sort of businesses bound to do things easier because that is makes makes their ability um, <clears throat> makes them more productive, which is good for good for the economy and I think ultimately if we look at productivity and we we'll try and rephrase it it is that you know is that issue is trying to make things easier so you can do more uh and you know the the clear focus at the moment is artificial intelligence and ai and and sort of that sort of has been coming for a long time but sort of burst onto the scene in terms of share markets anyway with you know a real focus in terms of some of the very um it's <clears throat> the right word some of the um, very computationally um, challenging um, artificial intelligence that uh, has already driven demand for things like um, the computer chips that Nvidia makes that, that's able to do this at, at speed and uh, uh, and, and <clears throat> just able to yeah able to drive that business but ultimately if we step back uh, I think what is interesting about AI, and I'd probably use it in a in a wider sense. Things like general machine learning is that ability to to do things faster and better. And what does make us um, pretty excited about it is not necessarily the the very um, pointy headed for one of a better word artificial intelligence uh, roles. It's probably the breadth of it. And you know, for, as an example, um, something here, you know, often a lot of new zealand's exports have sort of missed out on some of the technology side because it's not as applicable to, you know, rural new zealand or things like that. but if you look at say the kiwifruit industry, you now have a situation that, you know, most kiwifruit orchards would have i'm going to guess, yeah, maybe a million individual kiwifruit on the vine at some point in time and it's really hard to work out how big your crop is. people have gone around and basically counted square meters of how many fruit are in that. Now you can drive along with a you know, a 4x4 four four with cameras and they count them and they use machine learning to actually count them and you can get much better numbers and very, very quickly. So from a productivity point of view, what's the benefit of that? Well, it probably says that you can focus your your workforce on specific parts of that uh, property to you know, focus where you need it and you can sort of, information gives you that ability. So I think that's, it's not a, it's not a um, something that will necessarily flow through this year, but as we go forward, and if you think about where, where the, the global economy has been over the last 10 years, you think 10, 20 years you had that impulse from China. China was bringing new product and cheap product, which in in respect was certainly a deflationary force, but also possibly actually were a bit of a productivity game because you got things faster and you could, didn't have to have inventory. Now. China's not going to do that to the same degree. You know, they're not as cheap as they were, and there's this deglobalization process. But potentially, uh, artificial intelligence offers that opportunity to actually expand um, across industries and more broadly than we expect, and just at the margin, make, make people's jobs faster and easier. I, I read
0: um, uh, yesterday uh, a synopsis of a study that Harvard did. Uh, in relation to productivity benefits from uh, AI. And what they did is they got um, two big teams from Boston Consulting Group, which is one of these huge mega consulting organisations like McKinsey, and um, instructed one team to uh, use ChatGPT, and the other team were banned from using ChatGPT. And they said, whenever you can, you should use it, and and then the other group, obviously, you're not allowed to. And they measured their output over a period and concluded that the team that was using it was 30 to 40% more efficient and more productive in terms of their ultimate output over the period, Um, just by accessing information faster and being able to produce data more quickly. And and they concluded that um, that's huge, but it doesn't um, uh, supplant a person, it it enhances the person, because some of the data is not good, as we all know, and it always needs to be um, you know, analysed and sort of repackaged in in and in a way that is um, appropriate for for for, for the, the, you know, the particular task. But um, uh, I haven't seen you know people putting numbers on it so clearly before, and um, and from a, such a reputable organisation, it, it, it you know it was obviously getting quite a lot of um, uh, interest that that particular article. The the other thing that um, just related to this is chip prices. Um, uh, AI and machine learning and all of that has a huge amount, of, requires a huge amount of computational power, and my understanding um, is that the price of chips just keeps getting cheaper and cheaper. And um, and now um, there's new advancements. I believe Canon is a, a big chip manufacturer. They've just come out with a new tool that they think is going to heavily reduce the price of produ- producing chips. And then of course, Nvidia and um, and Taiwan semiconductors and so forth. There, there's a lot of investment going in there. Do you, that, that is, I guess, one of the foundational pieces to that next step up in productivity.
1: Yeah, um, definitely that technologies scale and and being able to sort of broaden the, at the moment, you know, the very, again, use that term, sort of pointy-headed. The chat GPTs, etc., require very specialised NVIDIA chips and NVIDIA seems to be the, you know, we've talked about it on different podcasts, one of those businesses that is kind of, you know, Fully integrated across the, the the AI spectrum, they make the chips. They have the software that yeah, bring utilizes um, bringing those chips together. But increasingly, yeah, and that that's going to expand across the the chip industry. And I think from that point of view, it does seem that at the moment they're very clear winners and losers. But actually the the cycle in that semiconductor industry is, is relatively early in the cycle, and there's quite a lot of opportunity for it to broaden out. So from that point, it's uh, we do think it's yeah a, a positive out there.
0: Great. Okay, so number four on our list of reasons uh, to feel optimistic uh, in the current climate is the strength of the consumer. And we have the U.S. consumer is obviously one. But there are other markets that have huge population bases, India, China, who are also, um, over the long run, um, you know, growing in their wealth and their and their desire to consume. How do you think that influences uh, the you know the outlook for I guess global economic growth?
1: I think generally, uh, what has been remarkable this time around is is. Western consumers, especially, have actually had uh, a really str- been in a really strong position, and that's come through a couple of different ways. One, because of actually, you know, again, probably because a lot of the government subsidies and uh, and actions, consumers came through COVID with very strong balance sheets. People had a lot of cash in their bank accounts, basically, so that meant they were pretty resilient to the uh, what was happening in terms of. Yeah, the inflation that they were seeing and, and the increased costs, actually, in terms of things like mortgage rates, et cetera. Uh, at the same time, you've had, uh, certainly in places like New Zealand and the US, actually we talked you know, we talked about sort of wage inflation. You've actually had that wage inflation and employment growth come through. So individually, you know, there's, there's clearly been stresses in places, but actually, say, somewhere like New Zealand, we've had household income growth has been running at around about 10% per annum. So yeah, you know, the consumer has maybe not been happy, but at an aggregate level has been there to actually sustain a lot of activity. Uh, and, and ultimately, you know, Western economies are 60 to 70% consumption, cons- basically consumer-based. So if that consumption is happening, then economic activity continues. Somewhere like China is uh, challenging, I think is the, the short answer. On one hand, you have this immense saving space. Yeah? Because there's not the same social infrastructure that we have here and terms of unemployment benefits, etc. cetera, uh, people traditionally have saved a lot. Being locked down, having much longer lockdown than Western countries, those savings rates have really exploded. Uh, so they are sitting on this vast you yeah. <coughs> war chest of, of consumer savings. On the flip side, though, you have an economy there that is, you yeah, struggling to grow. Uh, they do have housing issues in terms of, yeah know, there, there is a readjustment in terms of their property market going on and people don't have a lot of faith that, you know, their traditional way of investing, which is into property in the case of China, is going to be a long-term solution. So that activity is slow. Uh, you also have larger forces like demographics. Yeah, Their population is declining in size. The birth rate is not at a replacement level. So, yeah, again, coming back to New Zealand, we've seen population growth this year of close to 2%. That's really helpful to get the wider economy to grow. In the case of China, if their population is declining, that becomes a drag on that economy. So, yeah, there are reasons why consumption should be um, positive, but at the same time there's some bigger structural factors. So that's a sort of, a you know, <clears throat> probably a, a to-be-decided situation. The interesting one there, which we haven't touched on about inflation, is China historically has exported inflation just because goods would, you know, they made goods cheaper than other places. So people substituted away from higher-cost places back to China. At the moment, Chinese inflation is non-existent because of that sort of, you know, um, know, muted growth they're seeing there. So actually what they call producer prices have been negative for some time. You know, they've got disinflation and producer prices, and they've been skirting, they're back in it at the moment, with CPI deflation. So, you know, CPI there is basically zero to a small negative. So uh, if we think about global inflation, that's a big, you know, big country that has got no inflation or disinflation, so uh, it's definitely going to help the inflation side. Uh, India, India sort of is really the opposite in the sense that that population continues to grow fast. Uh, And, yeah, they are consuming more, they are bringing, you know, they they are part or parts of that economy are very highly educated. Uh, Certainly, yeah, productivity, things like AI will, will help that space a lot, I think, as they sort of, you know, probably gives them an ability to expand their capabilities, um, You know, maybe even things as simple as sort of you know, call centres, et cetera. They'll just do more, and they've got the volume of people to do that. So uh, that's a hard one to invest in, uh, but it's definitely a market that will demand product going
0: forward. Fantastic. And number five, um, the final, is what we've classed as the Fed put. Um, interest rates are higher now. And policymakers and um, central banks worldwide have more tools in their toolkit from you know learnings post GFC and also um, uh, having to you know deal with recent events such as Silicon Valley Bank take us through what the central banks can do if things were to start shaky, become shaky again
1: yeah, I, I think this is probably something which, Certainly the general media has not focused on, uh, but you know we've been through this transition process where we've come from very low, exceptionally low rates to more normal rates. And <coughs> excuse me, um, what might be, and again, this may be an issue that we find over time, but if we go back to prior to the GFC, we had interest rates like at these levels, and the economy, yeah, worked happily. Yeah, things, things, yeah, um, went along as normal. Um, we got used to very low interest rates. It's been a painful process for interest rates to move up, and that's still working its way through the economy. But it's highly likely, I think, that the economy will actually become more used to these rates and will continue to function pretty normally with these rates. Uh, if we go back to the discussion the Fed put though. Um, a lot of time, a lot of the activity in the 2000s, and really starting with the GFC, is that because inflation was low, the Fed always, and even the Reserve Bank here, Adrian Orr, et cetera, always had an ability, if they were concerned about growth and activity, to essentially take their foot off the brake, and in fact even push the accelerator a bit by cutting interest rates. And they were generally pretty quick to do that. <coughs> Sorry, I should have brought some water. Um, they were generally pretty quick to do that. Over the last 2 years, there's been a you know with interest rates moving up to combat inflation and with concerns over inflation. It's really the mindset has been that actually you know if the economy moves into recession, the Fed won't help us out. There won't be a there won't be a Fed put because they're worried about inflation, they need to get that under control. Given we're seeing inflation come back and behave in, in a friendly manner, for want of a better word, and with interest rates at the highest level basically in 20 years, it does suggest that if you know if we're wrong and the world becomes a more negative place, that actually the the, the bright light there is it's easy for central banks to go well actually five and a half percent. Uh, cash rates are not needed, the economy's slowing faster than we expected, we're going to cut interest rates. And that'll be that sort of positive, for want of a better word, steroid boost for the economy, for markets, that it will actually go, right, yes, the economy is slowing, but we think things are going to be better going forward. So in some respects, a little bit of the best of both worlds. Uh, so I think, yeah. and again, coming back to that sort of question of valuations, that process, if we did find... Uh, activity uh, or economic economic activity was slowing more than expected, that would probably be a bit challenging for share markets in the short term. It's really good for for interest rate markets in the sense that they will increasingly start to price in things like that, sort of, you know, central banks cutting rates. That'll be good for interest rates, so that's a positive on that side of the, the portfolio. And then when that actual interest rate cut comes, you would expect share markets to, to respond positively. So, yeah, for the first time in probably a couple of years, we actually have an ability where, where central banks can respond. Po- well, the market will expect that central banks have an ability to respond positively to poor economic news rather than
0: kind of wanting the poor economic news to get inflation under control when interest rates are so low, they can't, don't have any tools there, right? You can't go from zero to, well, you can, but it's not it's not very advisable to go um, negative, for example. Yeah, um, And, and
1: it, I think, yeah, you know, again, sorry, it's, it probably gets a little technical, but if we go back through um, the 2000s, a lot of the times inflation was always under their target. So they had the luxury to say, well, yes, <clears throat> if we've been raising rates, inflation's still below target, and if we've got any concern, will come, come off the break really quickly. Here, we're probably not quite at that degree of responsiveness, but we're definitely seeing positive uh, trends in inflation. And I think if you saw something which would actually increase that inflate, disinflationary force, i.e. slowing growth, central
0: banks would respond pretty quickly again, I think. Fantastic. Okay, so to wrap it up, those are the five. We've got um, earnings and valuations and uh, where they're currently at. We've got, uh, inflation continuing to decline, technological advancement and the impact that has on productivity, strength of the consumer, particularly the US and India with the, you know um, China obviously facing some challenges, and the Fed put. Five, collectively, five reasons to be optimistic in an environment where many um, feel that isn't the case. One thing I just wanted to, before we wrap up, um, you have been on the road with some advisors recently, and you're talking with uh, how they're interacting with their clients. Um, you know how how you know clients. You know from time to time come and they're concerned. They've read something. They feel like um, uh, the environment is changing in an adverse way. What 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 do you say to those advisors and how they should or what you know what tips would you give in in, in engaging with clients in those moments? Sure.
1: I, I think in some respects it comes back to the, the intro and sort of the example of 1991 in that um, if you're seeing negative returns in markets, often that's pricing in what is happening now or what has happened. Uh, markets, by definition, are forward-looking, and you know, that is their, their ability is, you know, to drive returns as we go forward. And I think you know, <clears throat> there are always challenges on the horizon, as again, as we saw in 1991, there were lots of challenges and the share markets worked their way through it. But, you know, and I'll be the broken record. what At times like this, it's about stepping back and trying to take two aspects to it. One, what are we trying to do? We're trying to stay out of cash and move into assets that over a longer time frame will drive return and actually can't, <coughs> capture those compound returns. So if you're able to do seven, eight percent per annum, that will double your investment over roughly a ten year period. <coughs> you can't do that in cash. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So to do that, the other one is think about it from the flip side as well. You know, one thing I've found interesting is yeah. You know, Talking with clients, it can be challenging to talk through negative returns and and why that's happened and and why we're positive going forward. But if you really sort of think about that as a, you know, certainly an advisor for for a new client, you talk, you essentially flip all those discussions on their head and say, well, look, the share market in New Zealand has gone nowhere for four years. We have interest rates at very high levels. You can buy bonds cheaply. Shares, because they've gone nowhere for four years, are a yeah, are a good opportunity to invest now, and yeah, you know, there will be ro- there will be a rocky road going forward. By definition, that's what you're taking on board when you, when you invest in an asset which uh, drives a higher return and has more volatility. Uh, but we know over longer time frames that you have an ability to grow wealth by being invested in those assets and staying
0: with them. So that would be the the mantra. Fantastic, and I'm mildly proud of us that we didn't talk about Bitcoin um, uh, somehow up to this point, which has had um, an incredible year so far. And um, for uh, advisors and, and clients who um, follow NZ funds closely, we, we tend to have a very small slither um, in our growth portfolios of Bitcoin um, and, and other digital assets through time. I'm a believer in um, uh, 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 being, uh, you know, a genuine diversifier and um, providing. Um, A small opportunity there at at the right level. And that's gone, I think, what, it's up uh, 60-something percent year-to-date?
1: Yep, yep. Um, Again, the core of portfolios will be bonds and shares, and that is always going to be the case. But we do think, as part of a growth allocation in the share space, that you don't want, just like you don't want one share market, you want multiple share markets, you also want assets that have an ability to, generate growth-like returns that are not shares. <clears throat> now, at New Zealand Funds, we want those assets to be liquid and accessible, so we're not invested in private equity or things of that or you know, private property, et cetera. Um, so, you know, we have focused on assets like commodities, small allocations to things like commodities, and small allocations to <clears throat> things like crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ether. Um, what is really interesting, I think, this year, In terms of Bitcoin, is uh, fundamentally at its heart, there are no more Bitcoin being produced. So it should have, you know, it's a fixed asset. So there should be a scarcity aspect there. Um, During the the hype when it got to 60,000, really it was what you call a risk asset. It definitely followed the high tech stocks, moved, you know, tech stocks went up and then down, Bitcoin did the same. This year, it's tended to march much more to its own, well, <coughs> to a to a tune that's different from shares, and in many respects has acted more like gold. You know, the relationship with gold has been much closer. So, yeah, because it's got that scarcity, <coughs> it does have many of the aspects of sort of a digital gold. And yeah, you know, we think it is a useful for clients in their growth strategy to have a small allocation to it, and we do think as uh, as we continue to move forward, you're seeing more allocations, you know, ETFs in the U.S. are likely to be signed off soon. That is a positive for that.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, it is, and it's um, uh, it, it's moving from, I guess, as an asset class, it's moving from um, uh, socially considered to be a bit fruity to being very uh, uh, institutionalized now. And, you know, ma- major clearinghouses and brokers and so forth are trading in it. So... Um, and now we've got BlackRock and Grayscale also looking to issue um, ETS, which we think will help it move to the next phase in its broader acceptance um, and, of course, uh, increased demand for the asset. Right. Mark, thank you so much. My uh, pleasure. Lots of good, well, five good reasons um, to be optimistic. And uh, I hope you have a good week. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on the call. Thanks all. This has been the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.